0: Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights, I'm Benjamin Ensor, Director of Research and Strategy at 11FS. In today's episode, we're asking, will the future of KYC, know your customer, be truly digital? As a wise man might have said, knowledge about your customers is power more and more people around the world are using digital touchpoints to access their banking. Uh, In the US, for instance, mobile banking has become the primary method of account access um, for about 44% of the population in 2021, a huge increase um, from the numbers using it as their primary way of accessing um, banking before the pandemic. And yet, despite the widespread use of digital banking in our lives, many of the processes that we use to identify ourselves, um, whether to banks or in in life in general, are still based on cumbersome and often paper-based processes, filling in forms, scanning printed documents. They're not truly digital processes. So as the technology powering banks evolves, so too must the methods through which uh, banks, insurance companies, and others verify who customers are and how to keep them safe. But Know Your Customer, or KYC, doesn't have a single one-size-fits-all definition. Different geographies have different anti-money laundering rules, uh, different legislation, and even within the legislation there can be different ways to interpret or apply uh, Know Your Customer processes. So in this show, what we want to do is look at what are the trends, approaches, regulations, and other changes that are going to shape the future of banking and Know Your Customer worldwide. So in this show, we've put together a panel of outstanding guests who are going to help discuss the current KYC landscape, how far we've come and how far there is to go, the technologies that are paving the way, and the regulatory challenges and what the future could look like. So, we're going to discuss all of this and more in a packed show. But first, we have a few brief messages. Hello and welcome, LFG people,
1: to FinTech Insider. Watching Cider, 11FS Spotlight, 11FS Explores, Open Mic Night, After Dark. (laughs) Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more.
2: Long live the community.
0: Let's get started. As always, I'm joined by a panel of fantastic guests who are gonna shed some light on this rapidly evolving topic. First off, it's a welcome return to FinTech Insider for my colleague, Will Jones, Executive Creative Director and VP of Design at 11FS. Thank you for being here, Will. Can you remind our listeners about you and your role, please?
3: Yeah, thanks, Benjamin. I think this is the first time we're actually recording a podcast together, so it's great to be uh, joining you for this. I think as uh, my role Title perhaps betrays. uh, I lead product design at 11FS, so working with clients to build and launch new ventures or fix experiences that need improvement. Really, I think KYC and I guess the broader topic of onboarding are always high on the list of important customer experience points to get right. Because if you if you ain't doing that right, they're not getting through the door. I think very much I'll be coming at this from an experience design angle. So probably like a lot of people listening to this. I'm hoping to learn lots from uh, our other guests here about the technology and and regulation side of things and fully prepared to ask the dumb questions.
0: I think you should be in good hands because we have a welcome return for Emma Lindley, Managing Director of International Expansion at CAF and co-founder and chair of Women in Identity. Welcome back, Emma. What should our audience know about you and about CAF?
4: So Thanks so much for having me on again. i delighted to be here. Um, what can I tell you about me? So I've spent 20 years working in the field of, of identity. Um, I was uh, one of the first people at a company called GB Group um, back in 2002 when we built the UK's first um, digital identity proofing system uh, here in the UK, uh, since then, lots of things have happened. Uh, co-founded Women in Identity, which is a, a global organization focused again more diversity into the digital identity industry, it was about five years ago. Um, and then last year, I joined a company called CAF, um, and we are an integrated identity platform and um, solution, and we do KYC and KYB globally. And yeah, I'm I'm leading all of our international expansion company started in Brazil. And yeah, lots of exciting stuff that we're doing there.
0: Fantastic. Exciting stuff. Welcome back. And it's also a welcome return for Joe Robinson, co-founder and chief executive of Hummingbird. Thank you for joining us. Can you remind our listeners about what Hummingbird does, please?
2: Thank you. Always excited to participate in one of these. Thanks for having me back. I'm Joe Robinson. I'm the CEO of Hummingbird. We are a platform for compliance teams. We power the workflows, the investigation work, and some of the regulatory reporting that they do. Uh, SAR filing, suspicious transaction filing, things like that, uh, as well as customer diligence workflows. So excited to get into that topic. I started my career as a a product manager. I was an early product manager at Square and led the the dashboard products and later the e-commerce products there. And then I spent time in the crypto industry at Circle as the head of risk and data science, and and then did a brief stint at IDEO, uh, helping a very large bank in the US uh, work on financial health uh, as a designer and a product manager there. So it's been a fun tour of the industry.
0: The financial health bit sounds like a bit of a sort of detour from some of the other uh, other things on your CV, but, uh, or your resume, uh, but fantastic. Yes. Okay, well, let's start by um, Looking at the current sort of KYC landscape and thinking about some of the sort of component parts of of KYC, Emma, I'm going to ask you to start us off with a with a, with a definition. What is KYC? I mean, obviously, know your customer, but beyond that, what is it?
4: Yeah, I mean, I guess when we started out having to do know your customer checks, um, you know, this is a, this is predates probably you know, you know many of us when we were working in this industry. Um, You know, people would need to go into a bank physically and prove their identity. They might be reducing things like passports or driving licenses or or utility bills in person, often to a bank manager that they might know, uh, you know, might know them reasonably well. As time's gone on, honestly, we've got, you know, huge growth of of e-commerce. Lots of people have started to use the Internet, as we know, huge digitization. And that process has had to move online. And it's all the regulation that comes around having to open up all of these accounts. So KYC really is put in place by regulators to manage the risk of you know around financial services. So when money is you know ha- being one of the accounts are being opened or money is being transferred, we have to validate the identity of somebody. Now, if you're trying to do that in person, um, you know it's a it's a bit of a it's a bit of a pain, um, but a bit easier. When we've moved into the digital world, obviously all of the regulators said, well, we need to do that electronically. So now what we do with KYC today is we do that via checking databases or checking um, electronic documents, passports and driving licenses, but do those in an automated um, online way.
0: It's often seen as a sort of regulatory mandate. It often is a regulatory mandate, but is is know your customer just about sort of complying with regulations, or does it also actually help protect the firms from from risk? Is it something that kind of firms should be doing, kind of even if there weren't any regulations that said you had to?
4: There's two schools of thought on that, so um, <laughs> and, and I'll and I'll talk you through them. So when I started out um, my life in the identity industry 20 years ago. Um, the way that we would validate, and, and it, there isn't huge dis- dissimilarities in the way that it's regulated twenty years ago to the way it's regulated today. You would put in your name and address and date of birth, and you know that would be electronically validated against things like you know electoral roll, the telephone data, um, you know, and other databases, credit referencing databases behind the scenes. That hasn't really changed what has changed is the ch- the changes in fraud so back in the day 20 years ago when people used to do that electronically kyc really kind of helped fraud right because you know you would you would know your data you would know your name your address your date of birth you know you might know your passport your driving license number typically those weren't known by other people what's happened over time through things like, Data breaches, you know, uh, social media, phishing, all of those types of things. That data is now widely known by people. So the KYC processes that we have today, the, the kind of, you know, you put in your name, your address, and your date of birth, we have to kind of assume that those KYC processes don't really help with fraud um, because that data might be out in the public domain. So KYC dependent on the depth in which you go into can help with fraud but the way that we used to do it 20 20 years ago has had to fundamentally change to the way that we do it today so you know now we're seeing the introductions of other authentication methods such as you know biometrics and things like that trying to bind people electronically to their their identity documents because we've had to because the face of fraud has changed but yes so that's a, I've kind of given you a, a kind of a broad answer there, but it should help with fraud. It should do. Got it.
0: Thank you, Joe. I'm going to bring you in with a with another sort of basic question. Um, we talked about KYC, but there's also KYB, Know Your Business. Can you tell listeners what's the difference between Know Your Business and Know Your Customer? And you know, what are the nuances? How is How is Know Your Business different or harder? Uh, maybe it's not harder, but um, how is it different to Know Your Customer?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, many financial services are provided to commercial entities, right? Businesses, corporations, uh, small and medium businesses, mom and pop shops, things like that. And, uh, you know, in order to provide the financial services to those companies, the uh, financial institutions need to perform checks on who the owners are, who the people involved are, what the purpose of that business is, uh, and other things. So. I think in many ways, we could, we could probably safely say KYB is harder because it uh, also includes KYC. You're also looking at the owners, but usually more than one. Um, and so it becomes a much more intense process of understanding how the, the company that you're working with will be moving money, uh, the purpose of their business, uh, things like that. It can be very, very complicated. There are issues, uh, as, as many know, there are issues with shell companies, uh, so companies that have been created in jurisdictions that basically allow creation of, of legal vehicles for anonymity. These are used to move money around the world. They can often be used for crime and nefarious purposes. And so the organizations trying to work with companies need to really understand who are behind those things. Uh, Folks, uh, listeners may have heard about beneficial owner acts. Uh, So understanding who is benefiting from the company, uh, what the purpose of the business is, whether it's engaged in high risk or potentially illegal activity, uh, whether it, you know, meets sanctions requirements around the world. Um, So there's just a, there's a lot. It's a very complex and deep practice area that can be very uh, tedious. And time-consuming and costly for financial institutions,
0: and of course costly. You know, if you get it wrong, right? So, I, I was going to ask you about the shell companies thing, because presumably there's a point at which you you hit a wall in, in you know in certain jurisdictions. You know, there is a a company, let's say it's in the United States or, or, or um, Panama or wherever, and that's owned in turn by a company somewhere else. And presumably there are certain jurisdictions where you just hit a wall and you just you can't tell. It could be owned by a perfectly legitimate business, or it could be owned by a huge international drug cartel, and you just can't tell. Is that is that right? There's just certain just, just certain places you just can't. You get stuck. That's exactly it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, there there are jurisdictions that you know do do good business in setting up uh, legal entities that are designed to preserve anonymity and uh, organized crime, and and the largest uh, criminal networks in the world, of course, are very familiar with these jurisdictions uh and so there's there's a lot of business that um isn't legitimate and uh you hit shell companies i I think the global banking population has acknowledged this issues we see new regulations coming out about it uh, but it remains just a a a giant issue for the industry
0: well i want to bring you in because one of one of the things that can be very frustrating for businesses, you know, is if you know, if they can't get approved, accounts approved quickly, or for consumers who, you know, are trying to make a payment or trying to open an account and and they have to go through very convoluted processes to prove their identity and so on. That can be very frustrating. How can companies kind of balance a good user experience with, um, you know, thorough sort of know your customer? How, how closely linked does sort of know your customer come to sort of product design?
3: I think very closely linked, but then again, most things are fairly closely linked to uh, product design, but I guess this one especially, and I think there's probably two sides to the product design coin when it comes to KYC, both the the experience the customer gets and the frustrations, and also, I guess, the product design that drives uh, efficacy for the provider themselves. I suspect uh, Joe can talk in more detail about the, uh, the second side of that coin, so I'd perhaps say... Part of a customer's experience, like KYC is a grudge journey. It's a part of onboarding that you kind of just have to go through. And it's hard often for customers to actually see a tangible benefit to them. It's just something that will cost them time and effort, and I guess keep them from their ultimate goal, which was, you sold me on actually being able to do a thing that allows me to put my money over here. And now you're asking me to go through this. I think we all know that's from, I guess, a retail banking uh, perspective, improved massively uh, over the last few years. But, you know, if you start to have a look at uh, sort of corporates, waiting over three months to use a new financial tool, it's, I guess, similar to uh, the thing you're signing up for, having another job and you having to wait for them to complete their uh, notice period, with no real sense that they're going to turn up on day one. Now, actually... We talk about constraints in design uh, and those being a good thing uh, and trying to design around them. Compliance and regulations are often great constraints to uh, uh, to try and design around, but ultimately non-negotiable. So they are things you have to design around. And I think if we think about what we actually need from someone as part of a KYC process, we're asking them to turn up with some information. We're asking them to sort of trust us in terms of the length of process uh, and uh, to give us that information. So there's a bunch of things we can do around sort of prepping people for what they'll need, managing expectations for how long it takes. Like This is just good form design generally, even though a form is what we're trying to avoid. Like this is where UX writing really comes into play as well because um, like trying to engender trust, trying to help people understand uh, how they might hold an identity document up to a camera and when something's gone wrong, this is all really important uh, sort of design stuff. And then finally, I suppose, organizations, because they have to go through KYC often see it as an, uh, and get that information from someone, I think they often see it as an opportunity to get things from customers that they want to know rather than just (laughs) things that they need to know. And that needs to be avoided because we often work with people that have got sort of a, the huge uh, set of things they're asking people. And we're going, why do you need to ask all this stuff? We know for a fact that all you really need is these things. And like, actually to get to the sort of lightning fast, low effort onboarding on sort of just get the essentials up front for KYC. Find a smarter way to clue up on customers so that you can do clever things with it. It isn't just padding out uh, unnecessary steps and preventing people from from getting in.
2: I remember this from my days as a product manager, to your, to your point Will, um, I remember seeing UX studies that were analyzing the number of requested fields for the onboarding flows for financial services. And it was like, mm. you know, one service would have 11 fields required and another service would have nine fields required. And it really is this game of how little can you ask in order to get the customer into the product and, and doing the, what the service intends. Uh, without throwing up these gigantic uh, application processes, so.
0: I'm glad you said 11 and 9 rather than 44 and 68, <laughs> which is.
2: <laughs> yeah, so it's, been, it's been carved down. I mean, it's very impressive how little information um, some organizations have been able to ask in, in an onboarding flow and, and still meet KYC requirements.
0: We obviously think 11 is the perfect number. But anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> so as, as the technology has evolved, um, so you know know your customer methods have changed and so on. Um, let's take a look at how some of the sort of changes in underlying technology and how that's changing the game. But there's, there's one point I just want to come back on. Um, Will talked about sort of onboarding and, and know your customer as part of onboarding, which is absolutely right. But hasn't there been a shift from thinking about security more widely as a sort of one-off process when customers come into the door to more of a sort of zero-trust environment where it actually becomes more of a perpetual process. I mean, Joe, just very quickly on that, is that the case? Is that something you're seeing that, that firms are thinking about you know your customer now as more of a sort of ongoing thing rather than a one-off thing?
2: I think that you have to. Um, In fact, I think if you're, if you're viewing it as a one-time thing and not performing some, some form of ongoing monitoring, you're going to run into regulatory issues. And um, you see this just with the, the customers will sign up for one intended purpose of the account uh, and then begin to use it a different way. Uh, Particularly with commercial entities, uh, you know, businesses and companies, you may see somebody signing up for one line of business or one expressed purpose uh, in, in the us here we have emergent legality of marijuana for example and you'll see businesses that sign up uh, unrelated they may advertise uh marijuana related you know paraphernalia or t-shirts or bumper stickers or things like that uh, but then you know a few months later the the institution will realize they're actually a dispensary uh which can create uh, all sorts of regulatory issues so I think that the process of ongoing monitoring is almost just as important as the initial onboarding, uh, but um, it's a it's a practice area that can be very difficult to orchestrate.
4: Yeah, I'm. I would agree with that. Um yeah, I was just going to come in there and uh, just say that you know, obviously, you have to do things like politically exposed persons and and sanctions, and you know, I think we've seen that over the the last few years certainly with the change in uh you know the geopolitical environment um you know the war between you know, europe ukraine and russia you know there was just kind of overnight um a whole bunch of people went on to things like the the sanctions list and if you weren't monitoring consistently you know and if you didn't didn't know that as a business you know there was a real scramble by those businesses to have to go we now need to go and screen all of our customer base to make sure that these people haven't ended up on being on you know, the sanctions list. So I think, you know, that to, to Joe's point, doing the ongoing monitoring is, is just good practice and it's a regular, regulatory requirement as well.
0: What are some of the technologies um, that have come in, particularly in the last sort of four or five years, that are helping firms... Do KYC and KYB more efficiently and more effectively? Maybe to 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 you Emma first. Um, I mean, obviously the internet, obviously data, but but what else is making it easier for customers? Sorry, for companies or helping companies? Um, without what technologies are making a difference?
4: You know, biometrics have been have been a you know a bit a big one. Um, I think that you know we've seen some markets move to those almost entirely um, in countries where perhaps. They've not had any underlying identity information. So India, for example, with their ADHA program, you know they they had to go almost entirely to biometrics first because a lot of people in India didn't have any kind of uh, government issued documentation. So I think biometrics have been have been one of the big ones for me. Um, Certainly, that you know, there's also been some challenges with uh, you know data, data privacy, and new data privacy regulations coming in about how data can be used. Um, but I think so. One of the interesting things I think that's evolving out of the space, um, with regards to that, are things like um, privacy-enhancing technologies, so they can take the data and obfuscate it so it can still be used and it can still be shared. Um, but without you actually you know, perhaps sharing the data. And we're also now seeing a move towards things like decentralization so that data resides with a bank or with an organization. And then what you're doing across a decentralized network is you're actually sharing insights rather than sharing the actual data itself. So I think those are some of the kind of key technologies that I think we've seen that have helped us protect data Allow it still to be shared, but also biometrics as well—that kind of over, um, more um, in-your-face type authentication technology.
0: What about the oldest technology, the the, the person? Um, Joe, can I bring? I'm going to bring bring you in this on this one. so what what's the role of people? Because this is an area where um, sort of automation and artificial intelligence, obviously brings in some benefits because sometimes computers can spot patterns that people can miss. But then equally, people can sometimes see information that's obvious to us, but might be missed by a system. What's, where's where's the, the balance? And maybe i will I'll bring you in on this as, as well after Joe. Well, what's the, what's the balance between people and sort of automation and AI? in this area
2: it's it's an interesting one i i think what we're seeing with the emergence of uh large language models and ai is uh, are ais that are actually very good at cross tabulating information across many different sources and documents um and uh I, I would have you know three months ago or something like that said that the pattern recognition that humans bring uh is in a very important part of the process and i don't get me wrong i still think that is Uh, But I think we're seeing AI get better at that as well. The the human process is probably the ability to take it all as a whole, uh, particularly in KYB um, and or in large, you know, groups of uh, retail customers, consumer customers and see, you know, what am I seeing across this group? Uh, What am I seeing in terms of pattern recognition? What things have we had problems with before? um and just sort of remembering these uh these pathways that uh customers and organizations can go down that lead to problems down the line so
0: what's your
3: take well is there still a role for people i mean look the my understanding of the, the back end of these sorts of things is that we are looking at large sort of data sets at one time people have a, like a finite set of like co- cognitive abilities that Uh, machines can just do a lot quicker at greater scale. But what they can't do is perhaps communicate information to clients or users when there is an error, when something is wrong, when a payment can't be made for various reasons. But it can provide more information and do it quicker. So there's perhaps, as in a lot of industries, a, a shift in focusing where humans are useful and where they can benefit uh, like the engagement with the business rather than necessarily doing uh sort of the checks and and measures. I,
0: I feel that the advances in AI over the past few few months in particular, and certainly the past few years have been so great that we're increasingly sort of searching for the role for people um in, <laughs> mm-hmm. in some of these processes. Um, <laughs> Emma, what 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 role do people play in, in the sort of KYC processes themselves at CAF. I mean, obviously, you've got people in marketing and all sorts of other roles like that. Um, But but to what extent are people playing a role in some of your um, monitoring processes?
4: Yeah, I mean, so we we actually have um, quite a big team of people that um, look at documents, forensic document experts, because, you know, AI is great. It's it's evolving hugely at a, a really fast rate. I think that um, you know, there still is a place for 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 people. Um, you know, when you get through those kind of really difficult documents or perhaps the lighting's not not taken well. Um, and it does it does one or two things within that kind of like the document verification identity documentation sphere. What it does is it stops the fraud better, you know, because you get those kind of cases where he is a fraudster and you get a forensic document expert that can actually examine the document and, and particularly in markets where documents are really complicated. So, you know, we live in a, in, a, in a world in the UK where there's lots of standardization around documents. When you go out globally, some of those markets documents are really complicated, right? So uh, Brazil, for example, has 3,500 identity document types. That was kind of like mind-blowing. And so, you know, you you still need humans sometimes to look at these documents and go, is it a real document? Like even looking at the perforations on the document. So I think, you know, they they help stop the fraud. The other thing they do is they help good people get through the process as well. Because sometimes, (laughs) you know, to to Will's point, that it's a balance of UX, you know, trying to get somebody to understand that they're supposed to like hold the camera a certain way, take a picture of the document the right way. People are people. Humans are humans, right? And sometimes they do that incorrectly. But that doesn't mean they're fraudster. It just means that you know it, they haven't been able to get through the onboarding experience. And having a human sometimes look at those exceptions and go, actually, this is an alright document. You know, this is an alright application. You can actually help support with people in the back end. Help support good applications going through. So you know, I think there still is a place for for people. And um, I don't think we're there completely yet with automation in the identity space.
2: I have an interesting example of of what you're saying, Emma, where we had a fraud ring. Uh, This was a few years ago, so I'm not sure if image recognition and identity validation would would catch this yet, but we had an interesting fraud ring where the unifying characteristic that um, we spotted eventually was that the passport photos from uh, identity validation of, of the whole document, you know, they were... Flawed the way a human would take a picture of a passport, and there was glare and things like that. Uh, but we spotted that the the subjects' signatures were all very elegant and all very perfect, <laughs> even though the lighting and the shadow and the things like that were changed. It was sort of like who who writes like that? And we mm. you know we would find dozens of subjects that had these you know, probably generated signatures, but they were clearly like much better signed than a normal human would sign their own passport document. So it's interesting for this discussion, it's like, how would, uh, how would image recognition catch that? How would you spot that anomaly through machine learning? Maybe it's possible today, but uh, it would certainly be difficult given each signature is unique. Uh, and it was something about the quality of the lines and the signature.
0: I love that as someone as someone who's been mocked for their entire life for their bad handwriting. I love the idea that bad people have <laughs> immaculate handwriting. <laughs> 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 Wonderful. Okay, we're just going to take a very quick uh, pause here and we will be back very shortly. <music>
1: A lot of you know 11FS for our chart-topping podcasts, our events, videos, reports, and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle. We do so much more than that. At 11FS Ventures, we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design, build, and launch truly digital financial services. We are building banks, shaping new propositions, and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services. And our design, research, Strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customers' relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures.
0: Okay, in this next section, we want to examine the role that regulation plays in KYC and how that might change and evolve on a global scale in a truly digital future. So I suppose the first question, and maybe I'm going to throw this one at you, Emma, is is what comes first, uh, changes in regulation or changes in the sort of technology and know your customers? Is it that sort of the technology vendors who are coming up with better solutions are then sort of influencing the regulators or are the regulators sometimes influencing um, the technology vendors or is it a bit of both? What's the interplay between the regulators and the technology vendors?
4: It's a good question. I think it's a bit of both. So if I go back to when we built the kind of UK's first identity, digital identity proofing system, at that point in time, even if you could check against databases to verify due to KYC, you still had to, in a bank branch, the regulation said you still had to physically see passports and driving licences. So um, we worked out a way that you could verify passports and driving licenses electronically using the MRZ numbers off the off the documents. And we actually went to the regulator and kind of lobbied them—not lobbied them, but you know, we we, we made the case, encourage them, course, persuade they, them, encourage them, encourage them, made the case that actually checking electronic checking documents electronically was you know automating it was going to help with um, speeding up the processes, increasing of digitization, moving the whole process to online. And actually the digitization and the, the automation is there to replicate the very best people on their very best day. And then you still have you know the manual review team to, to look at their kind of exceptional cases. And that's why in the UK that the regulation was changed to allow um, document verification. So I think, you know, there's a very kind of concrete example of where from an industry perspective, and we weren't the only ones, right? You know, there was a kind of a swell and the banks came with us and said, we'd actually like this to happen, right? Because it will make things cheaper and faster and easier for customers, right? Um, So that's an example of where the, it's been an industry led thing, But I think we also see regulators, you know, putting new regulation in play. So if we look at, um, you know, marketplaces, for example, you know, they are coming under scope of increasing regulation, right? Because they're kind of like peer-to-peer market spaces. Often you've got people buying and selling peer-to-peer. Sometimes you've got businesses as well because KYB comes into scope. And so there's a new set of um, regulations, both in the US and also in Europe, that are bringing those those organisations into scope of regulation um, around identity verification. So I think it's a bit of, I think it's a bit of both. Um, in terms of where the innovation happens, I mean the innovation, in my opinion, it happens in the market, right? It doesn't that doesn't necessarily come from regulators. I don't think they're Coming up with amazing innovative ways to do things. we um, are not going certainly... to get a job
0: in the regulator on, from this podcast then.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to all the regulators out there, but you know, I don't, I mean, you know, the, the SCA is doing stuff in the sandbox. I think it's interesting. <laughs> they're like the people playing, but you know, I don't necessarily see them as being the innovators. They're there to put the they're there to explain to the market what the outcomes need to look like. This is what good looks like. They're there to take the regulation and turn it into something that, you know, the mar- should make the market come up with the innovation. And, and it's the same with governments, right? Governments, if we look at the UK digital identity system, the government's not coming up with the innovation. The government's coming up with the standards. They're coming up with the rules. And then they say to the market, you innovate, you know, you you make the technologies here's the outcomes that we need to, to meet. And you are the innovators and you build the technologies that suit these these needs.
0: Love that. Um, Will, from a from a design perspective and a customer perspective, what should good look like, as, as Emma put it?
3: It's interesting because uh, we're talking about governments. I think in other countries where governments have had more of a hand in like a, a central identity standard, it's kind of, and actually driven that, that's kind of makes it look good from a customer's perspective like we've done some work in Singapore where they've got SingPass and I know there's a bunch of other regions where yeah as a as I guess a business you're giving up some of your customer experience to an unknown platform but it's the government and uh, people pretty much expect that to be slightly clunky but fairly useful in, in various different areas so I st- I still think in, in an ideal world you're going to as a business uh, sort of Go through a KYB process once uh, with a business, and then wherever you go next, you've gone through it. Like that's 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 never going to exist because everyone's got their different uh, different checks that they need to do. But like you, you don't want to have to repeatedly do this because I think customers don't really necessarily, especially retail ones, draw the line between authenticating for something and actually having to go through a KYC process. They don't know which industries are regulated or not or, or require this sort of thing, and I think you know some of the ways of authenticating to any service become so easy these days that actually it's a bit of a shock when um you're being asked for a, a lot of different things especially when um like your your expectation is set by by the uh the easiest thing to to sign into and not having to go through all of all of this to be perfectly honest so the more that we can make that repeatable um centralized and, uh, I guess friction-free while still being trustworthy—that's the dream for for consumers, not necessarily for regulators or or businesses. But customers just don't want to see it more than once.
0: Thank you. D- to build on that point, um, Joe, I want to bring you in. Um, fraud and money laundering and sanctions are increasingly sort of global businesses, if we can call them that. Certainly, you know, global operations. Um, And yet regulations are often national, Um, certainly forms of identity verification are national, if not lower level than that. I'm amazed by your Brazil (laughs) statistic, Emma. Um, Do we need to see more sort of collaboration and cooperation between sort of regulators to try and create maybe more international standards? Would that help? What needs to happen, Joe?
2: This is an area that I I actually find fascinating and and sort of inspiring about this industry is is that although regulations are local, as you say, uh, they are actually, they they sort of rhyme with each other. Uh, There are uh, multinational bodies like the Financial Action Task Force that uh, ensure that member states, uh, meaning the different countries participating, have appropriate anti-money laundering controls uh, appropriate anti-financial crime and um and so you see uh you know jurisdictions implementing regulations and laws that are, are sort of similar to each other so that those countries can actually interact with each other um and um, I, I find that to be a fascinating part of it. It's the, the regulations are of course local and they're, they're the domain of individual countries, uh, but there is already a lot of collaboration on these matters. Uh, there perhaps should be more on the, the specific problem of identity. I don't think you see a lot of that multinationally and, and to Will's point, uh, identity is actually, you know, an issue and, and part of the domain of our governments, right? Our, our governments actually give us a portion of our identities as citizens, our, our tax IDs, so that we can be charged <laughs> appropriate taxes. Um, but in, in many ways, um, I wouldn't want to see uh, my identity and, and the, the authorities that sort of verify my identity uh, privatized. I, I think that's actually part of what a government should should provide to its citizens is that sense of identity. Um, and uh, there could be more interaction and collaboration internationally on that so that there's uh, more cross-border uh, finance and availability to those products. Those are particularly challenging areas in in payments and remittances and things like that today.
0: That's that. Emma, you mentioned Aadhaar earlier in India, the Indian um, digital identity system. Yeah. Would would more widespread – I mean, obviously, India is now the most populous country in the world. I believe it overtook China like in the last week or two, um, apparently. Um, but would would more digital identity schemes like Aadhaar make things easier from a sort of know-your-customer standpoint or possibly even a know-your-business standpoint? Would it help if more people around the world had a digital identity? Or is that really only part of the puzzle, the wider sort of know your customer puzzle?
4: Yeah, I mean, it would help. Um, I think the thing about identity schemes, digital identity schemes, is that they are very localised. So they're very country specific because it has to start with the actual culture itself. So who are the humans that live in that particular country? Has the government issued those people you know, identity documentation before? um you know how when they enroll for that identity documentation, how secure is that process? Um when they get at that identity documentation, how is that then you know digitized? So all of those different kind of processes to build up someone's identity documentation that they then prove their identity with is different from market to market. So um I think it's kind of you know, it's feasible to make them work within a particular market where it becomes more challenging is when we try to get them to work across markets. So could I, you know, if somebody landed here without their ad heart in the UK, and would they then be able to go and open a bank account? No, because the bank would go, what is that? (laughs) You know, I don't know what it is. so you know, and that's and that's where it becomes really challenging. Now, in Europe, obviously, under the EU, they're trying to do something um, around. You know, they've been trying to do something for years called eIDAS, which is a um, an agreement between EU member states to recognise each other's digital identities. Um, you know, it's it's complicated. Right, It's complicated. It's going to take a long time. Um, so trying to get digital identity schemes to work within a, within a given country, I think that's, you know, is still complicated, but it's less complicated than trying to get digital identity schemes to work from country to country.
0: Okay, we've got two minutes left. So I'm going to bring you all back to the sort of question that we posed at the top of the show. Will the future of KYC be truly digital? So I suppose another way of expressing it is, are we still going to be identifying ourselves with paper documents, like driving licenses and passports in five or 10 years time? Well, how digital is this going to be?
3: If we're talking five or 10 years time, I, I think we'll still have some some paper items, or at least plastic, I think. It would be too easy for practical scenario and not KYC. Someone gets pulled over and their phone's died. How could they possibly identify themselves? Like you, you, you need access to these documents for various things. But I think there we will see a huge amount of uh, progress in the way um, that these documents can exist as a digital
2: artefacts and can be uh, processed more quickly and easily.
0: Joe, will the future of KYC be truly digital?
2: I, I don't know. I Will raises some interesting points. I'll, I'll add a futurist prediction here uh, that it may be digital, it may be paper-based, but it will certainly be more biometric. Um, because to Will's point, if you've lost your phone, you've lost your wallet, what else do you have? Well, you have your biometrics. And those are actually a very good place to start for identity. Mm, nice. Emma,
4: so I've been asked this question quite a few times before. Um and I always say I just don't I think it's it's gonna take longer than we think, you know, and I and I always kind of use the example of saying, you know, we look at payments, electronic payments have been around for an awful long time, right? And even a global pandemic didn't kill cash. People are still using cash, right? It's had a really good go at it, right? But there's still people out there using cash. So are we still going to see some paper-based documents in regions of the world? Yeah, of course we are, right? Because it's going to be fragmented and it's going to be messy and it's going to take a while for us to get there. But the, we will see really big leaps and bounds in increasing digitization in identity. But it's not going to be 100% digital within you know, 10 years, I don't think, across the world.
0: I think you're probably right. But I do like Joe's point about just because your phone has died doesn't mean you don't have an identity. Anyway... <laughs> <laughs> That wraps up today's discussion. Um, so, thank you so much for being such a wonderful uh, panel and joining me for this conversation. Where can people find out a little bit more about you and your companies, Emma? Where can people find out a bit more, more about you?
4: Uh, yeah, you can find us at uh, www.caf.io, and you can find Women in Identity at www.womeninidentity.org. Thank you, and Joe.
2: You can find me at hummingbird.co. That's probably the best place. And Will? Just find me on
3: LinkedIn and reach out. I'd love to chat. Um, and I think there's probably something topping and tailing this that tells people exactly how to find 11
0: And as for me, Benjamin, you can find me on uh, LinkedIn, Benjamin Ensor, or uh, on 11 where you can find out more about uh, what the team are up to. So thank you to all of you for listening. Uh, if you like what you've heard, please do subscribe to our podcast. Um, please do uh, let us know what you'd like to hear about in future shows. Um, if you want to join the conversation, join us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider, or you can even email us at podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you all so much and goodbye.